the reason that McGurk has maintained power and respect in Washington, D.C. and beyond is that he is the Islamic State. He is seen as a key figure in the destruction of the Islamic State. And that's certainly true. But as we'll shortly get into, what is underappreciated is how large a role he played in the establishment of the Islamic State. Hello, and welcome to the More Freedom Foundation podcast. I am Rory, who is the producer of the podcast, and I am joined by someone who spends his entire life focusing on geopolitics, Robert Morris. Uh, how's it going, Rory? Uh, things are going well. It's been quite a frosty week, and we had snow, and about 9% of Northern Ireland's population went on strike. So that was fun. Well, that's exciting. What's that about? It's quite complicated. So a lot, there has been a lot of strikes been going on lately uh, throughout mm-hmm. Britain, but Northern Ireland hasn't had too many, but we don't mm-hmm. really have a government. So to try <laughs> to coax the government in and make the DUP do something, the British government basically said, oh, here's a load of money for these people. All you have to do is rubber stamp it and you'll have to go into government and make one. And the DUP still didn't. So... It seems that a lot of public sector workers are still underpaid. So it's a strike for government. It's it's a very strange thing. It's government workers, basically private workers have negotiated and gotten a pay rise. And a lot of uh, public sector workers in Britain have basically got a pay rise or most of them have finished. But uh, Northern Ireland, without a real government, has been left behind. Hmm. So well, weirdly, speaking, the British government has this big money incentive. <laughs> speaking of no government, um, I think we should, uh, it, that, that brings us somewhat elliptically to the topic of today's talk, which is Brett McGurk, a U.S. functionary who is possibly uh, the most responsible figure, uh, from the U.S. side at least, in the fact that Iraq still doesn't have much of a government. It's just a fascinating figure. I've really enjoyed uh, sort of diving in a little bit more on Brett McGurk, who is a character that I've found deeply annoying since my time uh, He has some overlaps with yourself, being a legal expert and spending a lot of time in Turkey. <laughs> there, That is true. That is true. He... Uh, it's had a fascinating career, this guy, um, and I, I think t- let, let's be clear at the outset: we are we have come here to condemn Brett McGurk, not to praise him. It is fascinating imagining sort of a different world where a character like this guy could have been a tremendously positive influence. The problem is that he is in the contemporary American context, where someone with his set of skills had nowhere to advance himself in U.S. government other than foreign policy. And he seems to have taken, uh, frankly, you know, impressive amount of gumption and get up and go and applied it uh, to an arena that he knows nothing about, doesn't appear to have much interest in learning anything about, um, and has managed to just sort of ride roughshod over everybody in U.S. government and everybody in government in the region for what seems like almost 20 years now. And it's, it's kind of, a, it's, a, it's a mystery, frankly. How did this guy manage to have his fingers in almost every foreign policy disaster in Iraq and Syria under four presidents and then get promoted to being uh, Biden's number one guy in charge of the Middle East and North Africa? It, it is a fascinating story of Gumption, get up and go, and incredible dysfunction. But also what's incredible is quite often people will joke that if they're a great problem solver, they're like, I'll solve Palestine and Israel. But this is what he's trying to do. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think the because so much of U.S. foreign policy is incredible incapacity, the legacy of horrifically bad decisions, Margurk has managed to find his way into power and stay in power because he just promises to do something. I'm going to find some kind of solution. And he he works. And it's, you know, I, I was I was thinking earlier, like, you know, it would be great if, you know, in, in a different era, sort of maybe the pre-Ronald Reagan era of US government, you know, somebody like McGurk could have ended up at a US uh, department, government department that actually did something that mattered, that actually did something that was positive and could have perhaps had a, had a tremendously positive impact. Like, can you imagine 
uh, McGurk sort of carving his way through, say, the Medicare bureaucracies or, uh, you know, some other, uh, you know, U.S. healthcare desperately needs the kind of uh, let's get stuff done uh, intervention that Brett McGurk has has brought to the Middle East. But uh, it's impossible to do that in under our current regulatory framework. Is it or, just or the fact he constantly says, I can do it regardless of what reality will do that's sort of... Um you know, captivating about him? I think so. I, I think people want easy answers. Uh, he's He was described in a couple articles, this guy, Brett McGurk, as uh, the most competent bureaucrat that whoever this source had ever met, the most competent bureaucrat he'd ever met um, with the worst foreign policy judgment he'd ever see. <laughs> so, yes, he definitely seems to get things done, but not necessarily for the best people. Yeah. And it's interesting, I, I hadn't really uh, appreciated this, but looking at sort of McGurk and where he came from, there's a lot about him that is appealing, um, I think, to a lot of, and specifically to Joe Biden, which is, I think, why he's ended up in a position of such uh, undeserved power, uh, considering his his litany of failures. Um, this guy, I, I was impressed, actually, looking into this. I mean, this is sort of a early biography thing, but I think this is the kind of thing that matters to Joe Biden um, and a lot of people, is that he went to the University of Connecticut, which is a very good, perfectly respectable university, but it is not a prestigious university. It is not, and it seems like he, through his talents, through his hard work, managed to get to the Columbia Law School, which is an extraordinarily prestigious uh, an impressive institution. And then he went on to be Supreme Court clerk uh, for uh, William Rehnquist, who was the the chief justice of the Supreme Court around the turn of the century. Um, and that's an that's an extraordinarily impressive biography. And it 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 indicates someone who's really got a lot of get up and go, you know, who really I mean, this is the 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 stereotype of the hardworking come from nothing American that frankly doesn't exist much anymore. And you can see why this has appealed to every presidential administration he's been exposed to, uh, Bush, Obama, Trump, and and Biden, but especially why it would, why it would appeal to Biden, uh, who is, I think, the only president, the first president we've had in, in 40 years who does not have the immaculate elite Harvard, Yale, what have you, uh, pedigree. Um, so that's perhaps, so, I mean, he's an impressive guy. What's, what's fascinating is, uh, you know, he's, you know, only, he's only four or five years older than I am and has done extraordinarily more with his life. Uh, so I'm a little jealous of him, of course. Well, he's also mm -hmm. done a, a huge amount of damage with his life, which, um, Oh, no question. <laughs> no, no question. You know, you can, you can argue that he, he's contributed to the deaths of, uh, you know, not, not the full million, but a half a million people. Certainly one of the main reasons Israel, Palestine issues were able to get to as dire a state as they, they are currently. Um, but let's, I mean, let's, let's start with his meteoric rise. He arrived in Iraq, apparently in January, 2004, at the age of 30, as one of many, um, sort of legal advisors. Uh, to the coalition provisional authority, the Would the US. Would this have been in any way similar to the rule you were doing in Turkey? Not at all. Not at no. all. Completely different. Not, a, not even a little bit. Not okay. even a little bit. No, I was working in the private sector. Uh, oh yes, a, yes. But what I mean yeah, is, as a legal you consultant. were saying about how a lot of um, international law is essentially New York law, or <laughs> you know, Certainly. you were you were dealing with mm -hmm. you know normal people and normal businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, would have Iraq mm -hmm. been treated anyway with respect, or were these people essentially just forcing America's will on them? Uh, I haven't. It's been a number of years since I've really done a deep dive on what was going on with the the, the CPA, the the coalition for coalition provisional authority. But while one of my my understandings, uh, not as deeply researched as I'd like, is that one of the many sources of Iraq's ongoing dysfunction is the fact that instead of getting what Japan got or Germany got, which was a bunch of earnest New Deal folks who actually believed in government, uh, helping to set their governments up, they got a bunch of sort of Reaganite lunatics who attempted to impose a hyper-libertarian government on Iraq. Um, I think that the U.S. occupiers lost out in some of their plans vis-a-vis -vis the oil industry, but not many. And mm, Iraq is still trying to dig itself out from under a variety of bad ideas that were foisted upon it by people like 
Brett McGurk and uh, Paul Bremer, the the head of the CPA. Do you think there was a genuine effort to make Iraq work, or was it kind of just raping and pillaging with some, you know, to make a, you know, the appearance of trying to help? We had there's this really fundamental bit of uh, broken brain that I think I'm only just recovering from, and that I think because for 40 years the message, the mantra in the United States, and of course in Britain as well, is that government is evil, government is the problem, government is only here to make you fail. So, of course, I, I do believe that many of these folks really honestly believed they were helping Iraq by firing all, <laughs> firing the entire military, setting up this libertarian paradise where all these flowers would bloom. In practice, as this works everywhere it's been tried, um, this has mostly functioned to bring about corruption and, uh, you know, benefits for the wealthy. In the context of the United States or the United Kingdom or Western Europe more broadly, where there's a decades or centuries of institutional heft, this actually can have some mm-hmm. positive effects. You you limber things up a bit. You free things up a bit. You, you know, for a number of decades. Would Israel be a good example? Because it seemed to start off quite socialist just to get the state going. And once it got to a certain level, it was then able to, you know, let things a bit more libertarian. Would that be an example of it being done right? I think that's uh, that's a fascinating question. Uh, and I think that that's certainly one way that you could look at it. Uh, because I believe that the, sure, that the, the sort of startup nation... Uh, more right-leaning, uh, more business-focused approach that Israel has right now is um, absolutely built on that heavy superstructure of social welfare, of regulation, of institutions. So yeah, in Israel, in in the United Kingdom, in uh, the United States, when you've got decades of institutional structures that can be disrupted in a in a positive way then this libertarian approach can really be, for periods of time, tremendously beneficial. In Iraq, where there was nothing, there was nothing to build upon but wreckage, instantiating this kind of libertarian government is incredibly ruinous and has led to nothing. Nothing nothing good. I don't think it's fair to tar um, uh, Brett McGurk with that brush entirely. You know, he got there as a sort of younger peon in the Bush administration. I think when we can start talking about blaming Brett McGurk is when we get into sort of the surge era towards the end of the Bush administration. I think just an indicator of just how incredibly successful this guy was, was that he got there as just another schmuck, just another legal advisor. And I knew these guys actually in, you know, 03, 04. Uh, You know, I had buddies who would go, because I lived in Washington, D.C., who would like, go over to Iraq and literally just party for six months. Wow. Because um, that's, you know, because the, the amount of money that was just pouring, they'd party for six months, they'd come back with Uday's surfboard, you know, the Saddam Hussein's kids' surfboards or whatever, and yeah, they'd talk about how crazy and fun it was. Oh, no, it was, it, was, it was a joke. The U.S. occupation was a joke because, again, none of these people actually believed that they needed to set up a government. They just needed to set up a libertarian paradise. Okay, but did they? So they genuinely believed that they would create something good that would last. I mean, I, I can't, I can't speak to what was what was in their souls, but I, I, I do think that, that that's sort of the problem with a lot of Reaganite governance, um, and fundamental to the way that we see a lot of things in the United States right now. We desperately need more New Deal type approaches to things. We desperately need more competition stuff. I'm a big fan of Lena Khan. Um, but most people, if, if you, Lena Khan, this is uh, at the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, who is taking steps to uh, break up monopolies or keep monopolies from forming in the United States. But I'd say most people, when they look at what Lena Khan is doing, like, oh, should, should government be interfering with the business that way? Even though the past 40 years of experience demonstrate pretty massively that, yes, absolutely, we need more of that. Um, I'd say that the the knee-jerk approach myself, the, the knee-jerk approach to any bit of government intervention is like, oh, that's bad. And this is 20 years ago. This is when everybody, before 2008, before, you know, when everybody still believed that deregulation was the magic and, and the market was all, was God. So anyway, so Brett McGurk got to Iraq at age 30 as one of these folks 
And by 38, in 2012, he was, the Obama administration had put his name in to be the ambassador to Iraq. So that's, I mean, that's extraordinary as a, as a 38-year-old to... Uh, Is he great at being a political so both parties are happy to work with him? I think he, what he was willing to do, which I think very few were, was spend a lot of time in Iraq. Um, and that that's another, uh, you know, nobody actually wanted to be in Iraq, you know, I mean, long term, for some very good reasons, the, you know, sort of the hideous violence of it. But also, again, you're not, you don't find success in government by by setting up worthwhile institutions. You find success in government by, because... Because we're in an era when nobody in government believes in setting up worthwhile institutions. So McGurk kind of distinguished himself by willing to spend, being willing to spend more time in Iraq. And, you know, you know his, his name is Brett McGurk. If you ever see a picture of this guy, he, he just looks like stereotype of a of a tough guy getting things done. And I think that's appealing to a lot of he people. He looks like one of the underlings in the Marvel films, <laughs> one of the like pencil pusher agents. Oh, he looks a little like Agent Coulson, you're saying. Yeah. yeah from the, yeah, the, I, I could see that. And yet, and I think that there's, there's another aspect. He's, he's got this sort of Vietnam era vibe to him. Um, it, I think it was, is it David Halberstam it was this journalist who famously talked about the best and the brightest, the, the you know, the, the, our geniuses, our hardworking guys who went in and created one of the century's biggest apocalypses in, in Vietnam, you know? And like, he's got that, he's got that old fashioned sort of competence and just the name, Brett McGurk. And I bet, you know, I bet he got along a lot better with all the military guys than most of the, the nerds at the State Department did. You know, like, because that's a, a, a traditional conflict with U.S. government is you've got the State Department people who actually know a little bit about the countries that they're dealing with. And then you've got the military guys who just want to, you know, blow up uh, military uh, targets, which makes sense, which is why you desperately need to heavily fund and uh, continuously establish respect for the State Department guys, which is, of course, something we have not done since the end of the Cold War. But anyway, so yeah, he's just this sort of like Vietnam era figure um, and apparently, you know, tremendously bureaucratically competent. Is his Arabic any good? My understanding is he doesn't have any. Which, Because when you're saying he loves spending time in um, Iraq, the fact that he doesn't speak the language, is, you know, it seemed to be something in articles that I read was a big point that he would just talk to everyone that spoke English, which seemed to be about four people. Yep. Yep. No, then it's, a, it's a, an extraordinary lack of interest even in, in the, the, the central thing that he's covered. I think the main figure in U.S. policy, uh, certainly since the Obama administration, it would, it would overstate his influence in the Bush administration. Again, he was still a 30-something, um, but probably the most inf influential figure in the policy of the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations for the Middle East does not speak Arabic. It is outstanding. <laughs> it's it's quite extraordinary. And you know, and perhaps he's he's developed a little sense of it since, but it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like that's the case. Um so yeah, we can't really blame him for um the the surge or for the nightmare that was Iraq's initial setup. Um that he was very much a cog and a very appreciated cog. And I think the extent to which he was really um relied upon by members of the Bush administration was noted. And I think that's the reason why he transitioned to the so well to the Obama administration uh, was that he, you know, he, he at least knew the players that spoke English in the Iraqi government. <laughs> and he knew the military folks who were on the ground, um, who were there for marginally longer. He was valuable enough because of that and had established his reputation as such a go-getter that the Obama administration was interested in working with him um, to the extraordinary detriment of both Iraq and Syria um, over the course of the Obama administration. Was he able to shape policy in, in any way? Like, was he able to say what would happen or would he be basically be told, this is what you're going to do, and then from there he was able to shape things? Well, I think the uh, that that's a that's an immortal question. Uh, uh, I think in the in the Bush administration, no. Um, I mean, he was he was uh, a competent and well thought of underling in the Obama administration. Perhaps uh, I, it depends on 
you know, which, which aspect you're talking about. I think specifically uh, what comes up a lot, and it's interesting in these profiles, uh, they seemed a lot more angry at him over his role in the development of the Islamic State, whereas I'm probably, as a big Turkophile, I'm probably a little more angry at him for his role in the crushing of the Islamic State, uh, or specifically the way that he went about that. The reason that McGurk has maintained power and respect in Washington, D.C. and beyond is that he is the Islamic State. He is seen as a key figure in the destruction of the Islamic State. And that's certainly true. Um, but as we'll shortly get into, uh, what is underappreciated is how large a role he played in the establishment of the Islamic State and how truly damaging the strategies that he used to end the Islamic State have been. Um, I would argue that Brett McGurk is a pretty important figure, not just in the dissolution of Iraq and Syria, um, but honestly, in the fact that Turkey is still an authoritarian state uh, or is, is, is becoming a more authoritarian state. Because he's someone that's been quite critical of Turkey. He's saying they're, as far as a NATO ally goes, they're not the best. And he's sort of wouldn't be too upset if they were to be kicked out. I am not saying we should kick Turkey out of NATO, but the question of the present tense, are they an asset to NATO? And what is NATO? It's a vital transatlantic alliance aimed to protect the security and prosperity of its members. And on that standard, Turkey right now is not an asset to NATO. Well, the feeling's mutual. Um, Brett McGurk, uh, after creating the Islamic State, his big strategy to, and I do believe he played a big role in this, uh, his big strategy for defeating the Islamic State he had helped create was to get very close to the Kurds in Syria, which is, of course, particularly enraging uh, for Turkey. And is honestly, in the the broader, um, there are certain decisions uh, that are made by the U.S. government, Rory, that I critique out of like my my weird pacifist, this isn't the right thing to do, this, that, the other thing. One of the but from the perspective of any supporter of U.S. power, supporter of NATO, which I am not uh, a big supporter of NATO, but any supporter of U.S. power, supporter of NATO has to be absolutely gobsmacked by how insane it is that the U.S. government basically uh, almost threw out its relationship with Turkey, the largest military in NATO, to defeat a uh, crappy little militia in Iraq and Syria that we had essentially created. So we basically created a crappy little militia and then we turned on uh, one of our most powerful allies in the region to defeat that crappy little militia. And that's just mind boggling. And that's Brett McKirk's big success. Because when you look him up, his the big thing he's known for is when Donald, well, not Donald Trump personally, but when Donald Trump let Turkey um, basically take out a lot of uh, Kurds, and he was very adamant against that. Well, of course, Brett McGurk is a, a is a member of the hashtag uh, resistance. He is, uh, after working for Donald Trump for, I think, almost two solid years, he really flipped out, not because of the Muslim ban, not because of uh, any number of horrible things that Trump did, but because Trump wanted to stop supporting the Kurdish separatist region against Assad and let uh, Erdogan do what he wanted there. Yes, the PKK. Um, which is like, and I get it, the PKK is very charismatic in a region that is filled with a, an array of terrible actors from Erdogan, now seems perpetual leader of Turkey, to the various jihadists. Um, we spent so much time and money trying to find somebody attractive to support against Assad. And it was so delightful that we finally found the Kurds with their charismatic female guerrillas and their, you know, progressive, uh, you know, up until 1989, we'd have called it Kami, but, you know, their progressive approaches to things. We loved those guys so much that we kind of looked over the fact that they actually were never fighting against Assad. That choice was insane. We'll get back to that, but it's important to focus also, there are two reasons why the Islamic State rose. Uh, and I think that they are, there's one reason we hear a lot about that Brett McGurk was almost entirely responsible for. Um, and then there's another one that actually, it's not clear to me. He may, this may have, the primary damage in Syria might've been done during one of those intervals when Brett McGurk was not in power. I could be wrong about that, but in the 
couple profiles I've gone through, it's not so clear to me that he can be directly blamed for the choice to fund uh, a massive jihadi free fire zone. Um, the Islamic State absolutely came out of Iraq, but the reason that they were able to boomerang back into Iraq is because the United States government, in cooperation with the Saudis, the Turks, and others, in 2011 and 2012, created a massive jihadi free fire zone in Syria. This is, by my mind, the, the principal uh, thing that Obama is guilty for in creating the Islamic State, was creating these safe bases for the Islamic State to come in from Iraq. And then in 2014, after uh, two or three years of setting itself up in this jihadi free fire zone that the United States created in northern Syria, then it came rampaging back into Iraq. That's that's what's happened. And I don't think enough satisfactory information to say definitively that Brett McGurk had a large degree of responsibility for that 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 very stupid plan to create a jihadi free fire zone in northern Syria. What nobody disputes and is pretty obvious is that he's almost directly responsible for the other half of that. The reason that the Sunnis of Iraq were, you know, had plenty of cannon fodder and manpower who were eager to go to Syria to set up the, their, their sort of bases and then come back into Iraq was a politician in Iraq uh, by the name of Maliki, uh, who was uh, the sort of Shia president dictator of Iraq for a number of years leading up to the 2014 Islamic State rampage back. And what Maliki was, was a Shia um, supremacist. Uh, the, I think 60% of Iraq is Shia. Um, and then of course you've got another 20% who are the Kurds and Maliki sort of made some deals with the Kurds and opted to crush the Sunnis. And that's, uh, where one of the main wellsprings of the Islamic state, which is primarily a Sunni resistance group, uh, was the oppression of Maliki and, uh, Maliki was Brett McGurk's guy. Um, as a guy, Why who did does he not... ever get introduced to him? Do you know? Well, uh, Brett McGurk was the uh, was a progressively more and more powerful guy in um, the U.S. administration of Iraq, and Maliki is an Iraqi politician. So I, I don't I don't know the details, but it, it's not okay, surprising. So, but did he speak English? Was he like one of the few that did speak English? So he got on well with him, or? I don't have that. I don't have that uh, confirmed. But it does seem that uh, Maliki figured out that this McGurk guy was a good guy to cultivate and did so. And, and also Maliki um, is also an incredibly hard worker, which uh, apparently in Iraq isn't always considered a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw that uh, in that in that article, just this idea that if you're working hard in Iraq, you're probably, you're probably working hard in service to corruption and screwing other people over. Or plotting against everyone else. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, so Maliki is, and I think is, is renowned uh, across the board. This isn't some dissident approach here. It's that Maliki uh, and his Shia supremacism were sort of the root of the problem with the Islamic State and uh, uh, the one of the roots of the Islamic State problem. And in 2014, he was quickly ushered out of power. And so that's the thing is that like the Islamic State can, to some degree, be laid at Brett McCurk's door Yet Brett McGurk, again, because he's a go-getter, because he's a problem solver, because he was willing to go get things done, uh, became the point man for defeating the Islamic State. And the Islamic State was, in fact, defeated, which is a good thing. It's, it's quite frustrating to see that one of the guys who created the Islamic State is now credited with solving this problem. You know, he created the problem, and then he solved the problem. And that is certainly a strategy for bureaucratic success. But um, it's not how usually jobs work. Generally, if you create a situation and fix it, you get in trouble for creating it in the first place. I've heard that he's been sort of, um, you know, he keeps failing and succeeding upwards. Would you agree with this? Yes, I think that is that is definitely a description of what uh, Brett McGurk has been up to. The way that he succeeded against the Islamic State uh, is tremendously damaging, as as I as I noted. Um, just from a historical context, people are going to be like, wait a second. So we tremendously damaged our relationship with the largest military in NATO, the home of a lot of American bases in the area, 
For what exactly? Because of the the degree to which I think people have already forgotten the degree to which the Islamic State dominated headlines. Uh, oh in yeah, the United yeah. It States. was considered like, oh, this is the end of the West. They're just going to take over every Arab country, and from there there'll be a new super state. Like, and also the the fact they were so much. Um, they're so much better with technology compared to what had come before, and the videos they released were just so grisly and uh, attention-grabbing. It was just like, this is the Mongol hordes have arrived. This was all, always pretty ridiculous, and in practice, and this is sadly historical fact, that the Islamic State evaporated rather quickly after the United States stopped funding jihadis in the Syrian war. Like almost, It was pretty direct. And yes, we also uh, had tremendous opportunities to bomb um, and bombed quite savagely. Uh, the sort of the only you know, one of very few uh, things that are comparable to what uh, Israel is doing to Gaza right now are the U.S. bombing campaigns against Mosul in Iraq and uh, Raqqa in um, Syria. What's, of course, the distinction there is that there were actually locals for us to work with in Syria and Iraq, whereas what Israel's doing in Gaza is uh, utterly hopeless and is just destruction for destruction's sake. It is a problem that the United States created and then the United States patted itself on the back for solving uh, at the cost of only billions upon billions of dollars of US bombs, uh, which is exactly the sort of thing we like. Um, so it is by Washington DC lights, the fact that uh, Brett McGurk was able to find a way to successfully defeat somebody, not something that the United States has done much of this century, um, or really since World War II, and managed to find a way to do so with a spectacular amount of munitions. That's that's big success from Washington, D.C.'s uh, perspective. Uh, you know, Turkey's a mess because of it. Syria's a mess because of it. Well, that's actually, that's the U.S. goal. Um, and Iraq remains a mess uh, because of Rhett McGurk's time in power, but that doesn't really matter that much as long as a lot of bombs got used. Um, and that is uh, that is an unfortunate... And you specifically, uh, I've mentioned many times with Turkey that the main problem and the main source of Erdogan's continued time in power is the war in Syria. It is the chaos from the war in Syria. Of course, he's a talented politician. There are many fault lines and issues within... Turkish society that made that sort of thing more likely. Without the war in Syria, Erdogan would not have had as many levers to pull. And that the, the war in Syria was absolutely a choice that the United States made. And Brett McGurk, specifically his affinity for the Kurds. I first heard of Brett McGurk because he was a real hate figure in Turkey, um, because he was seen as the U.S. government guy uh, who was the face of getting in bed with the Kurds. And I think that's a, a slight overstatement, but I don't think a, a, a too large a one. Um, and yeah, like Brett McGurk helped to provide the justification for Erdogan's continued time in power. Um, he lost an election in 2015, but was able to leverage um, Kurdish resistance in Syria and in Turkey into winning uh, a rerun election just a few months later. And Brett McGurk is one of the guys who provided that opportunity to Erdogan. So really just a disastrous, disastrous tenure. And then, uh, but he, you know, has developed some loyalties. And it does seem like Brett McGurk is a loyal guy. Like he is loyal. Well, that's one thing it seemed to say. Once you're sort of locked in with him, he will just work day and night to obviously further himself but also further you as well like he does seem to be a phenomenal worker and incredibly intelligent and charismatic oh i, I don't know if i'd go with incredibly intelligent but he does okay, seem to well, be that's fairly, a, fairly charismatic i know this article was very much in his favor but it was just laying down everything about basically he's so wonderful except that sometimes he does do pure evil and help an incredibly <laughs> bad man it's almost like he's yeah. just a tool you just have to a gun doesn't kill people. It's a bad person with a gun, so you need a good person. So if he's controlled in the right way, he would only do good. Well, fundamentally, it seems like he's someone. He's a guy who wants to get things done, and that's important. Um, but there does not seem to be much introspection or thought about long-term success. It is getting things done, putting wins on the board in a short in the short term. And not really thinking through what the long-term effects would be. And of course, the classic example is jeopardizing our relationship with Turkey, a top 20 economy, 
uh, biggest military in NATO in order to slightly more efficiently blow up a crappy little militia that was largely still fighting because we were funding it. You know, like this is it's insane when you look at it, but that's his big victory. Do you give him any credit? Like what's he done that you've went? That was actually pretty good. No, I don't give him any credit. No, no I, I don't. I don't, I don't no, he hasn't no. done anything good. Well, no, it's it's just it's all fruit of a poisonous tree. You know, it's it's like every like the it's all in pursuit of U.S. hegemony and selling bombs in the Middle East. Um, I think you can you know he's seen like obviously the fact that the Islamic State is no longer in power is good, um, and you can make an argument that he he facilitated that in a number of ways. But I think it's a pretty open question. Um, wouldn't the Islamic State already, you know, have, you know, did we really need to destroy Mosul and Raqqa? Could we have just cut off the funding? Because um, we did both. We ended up doing both. Did we really need to do as much destruction as we did? Do we really need to take all of those Arab regions in Syria and put them under um, Kurdish control, uh, which is continuing to uh, yield dividends in, in problems? And also the by supporting the Kurds the way that he does so loyally, he has created a zone. Um, and this is not just him. This is consistent U.S. policy. Uh, we have created a zone of disorder that has allowed the Islamic State to flourish. The territorial Islamic State was crushed. The reason that there are still out in the desert folks who are who are carrying out attacks mostly against the Syrian government under the name of the, of the Islamic State is because of the disorder that we maintain in Syria as a result of Brett McGurk's policy. Um, the Kurds, I, I am concerned about what Erdogan wants to do with the Kurds. What the Kurds should do is what they were doing up until 2014 was work closely with the Assad government. They should make some kind of deal. Brett McGurk stands in the way of that sort of deal. And his loyalty to the Kurds is actually not very good for the Kurds in the long run because the United States will eventually abandon uh, them. And the longer this this um, deliance with the uh, the United States continues, the harder it's going to be for the Kurds to get back in with Assad, um, which is where they were for most of the active parts of the Syrian civil war. So yeah, I just there are yes, it's good that the Islamic State was defeated. Uh, I think, but it's also bad that the Islamic State existed uh, and uh, has some responsibility for us. So, yeah, it's hard to give him too much praise. Yeah, I did a video called Everybody's Lying About the Islamic State that, like, uh, is one of my favorite videos three or four years ago um, that just sort of talks about how hard it is for me to give anybody in the U.S. government any credit at all for anything in Iraq and Syria. So his big thing, probably something that raised his profile immensely in 2018, was on a number of occasions, and I celebrated it every time, fruitlessly, Donald Trump promised to break, to take U.S. soldiers out of Syria. Uh, I don't know if it was the same occasion, but because uh, this happened three times and never actually happened, though U.S. soldiers did pull back from the border with Turkey, which is, it was a good step anyway. Brett McGurk and Jim Mattis. I don't. I can't recall if it was during the same, the same instance, or if there were different occasions of the same, different instantiations of the same dynamic. Um, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, and Brett McGurk uh, resigned in a huff because Donald Trump was abandoning the Kurds, and this was horrible. Um, and that made uh, Jim Mattis uh, and uh, Brett McGurk big hashtag resistance heroes. Uh, and it's just part of this dynamic that I've lamented many times and I will continue to lament that uh, these national security freaks who've done incredible damage to the world and I would argue are probably the biggest contributor to the fact that Trump was president uh, have now become heroes against Donald Trump and I find it incredibly irritating. Uh, but Brett McGurk is definitely in that category. How does Brett get on with uh, one of your favorite countries, Saudi Arabia? Well, he uh, Rory, he seems to get on with them very well. Which is a, a concerning thing to hear. <laughs> very much so. Um, he, uh, January 2021, uh, marched into a tremendously powerful position in the Biden administration, uh, in part uh, because 
he uh, resigned in such a public uh, flattering to national security types huff from the Trump administration. So starting January 2021, uh, and it's, I mean, this is, we think about it, this is a lot of quite a tenure, actually, uh, to have the same job through almost an entire presidential administration is kind of unheard of. You know, Hillary Clinton was only the secretary of state for two years for Obama. I mean, two years is sort of the, the standard stint. Um, he does seem like actually somewhat committed. I was talking this over with a friend, and I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but you know, a figure like this could have walked off 10 years ago to um, a lobbying job making extraordinary amounts of money. Like he does seem to want to be in the mix and get things done. Um, and the job that he has had uh, since is the National Security Council's coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. The National Security Council is a confusing thing. It depends from administration to administration how each presidency organizes itself is very idiosyncratic. Uh, I think uh, Henry Kissinger, even before he was the Secretary of State, was tremendously influential, was formulating Nixon's foreign policy as the national security advisor. It just depends. National security advisors can be the president's right-hand man and can be in charge of everything, or they can be uh, some random joke. Donald Trump famously, you know, uh, who knew who was running any of that? Uh, in the Obama administration, I think a speechwriter named Ben Rhodes managed to become tremendously influential. Just well, because that's he was, who the pro yeah, he wasn't he like basically supporting him from an early time, so he kind of got rewarded for that. Well, it's it's just whoever the president wants to talk to, and who, however the power gets gets organized. Brett McGurk, by nature of how, so you know, the the National Security Council has coordinators for all kinds of regions, and I don't know if any of those coordinators ever get to speak to Biden or not. I, I, I don't know how the Biden administration is dealt with. Because of Brett McGirt's profile uh, before this and because of his connections within the region, he has been able to be a tremendously influential, uh, tremendously influential guy in Middle East uh, politics uh, and has sort of been the face of uh, and the coordinator of uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Biden administration, and the results have been terrible. Oh my goodness. I'm very Abs shocked to hear this. Absolutely terrible. What the Biden administration decided to do was to follow the Trump administration more than the, the Obama administration. Despite campaign promises, they never made a serious effort at getting back into the Iran nuclear deal, and they decided that the Abraham Accords were the way to go. And that is what uh, McGurk has been working on so very hard for the past um, number of years, is trying to get more normalization deals between Israel and Arab dictators, despite the fact that the populations of all these Arab countries really deeply dislike Israel. It is a fundamentally anti-democratic policy. It is especially irritating to me personally after watching the Arab Spring uh, get murdered over the past uh, decade. The Arab Spring was, of course, the 2011 flourishing of democracy uh, that held such incredible promise for the region and was crushed by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Um, quite straightforwardly, uh, funding uh, coups against democratic leadership funding the nastier sides and ongoing civil wars, uh, just really quite disastrous. And to see these folks, these absolute monarchs who had done everything they could to crush real democratic aspirations, uh, get rewarded by the U.S. government has been quite personally repellent to me. During the Trump administration, that sort of made sense. Well, okay, look at this laughably corrupt plan by these laughably corrupt people. It's not going to solve anything. It continued to be quite repellent to me. Uh, and to see the Biden administration opt for this um, has been pretty pretty grim. And Brett McGurk has been guiding light behind that. We've talked about the, the deal before October 7th and how abhorrent uh, I found it. The proposed deal is that basically the United States was going to give some kind of NATO-like security guarantee to Saudi Arabia, plus a lighter touch proliferation of nuclear technology, plus, plus, plus. 
in return for Israel getting a not worth the paper it's printed on normalization with Saudi Arabia that I don't think will last out the decade. A just truly uh, morally bankrupt selling out of U.S. foreign policy to the architects of 9-11 Saudi Arabia and to a country, Israel, that has been revealed to be horrifically, horrifically brutal and to which I believe certainly ethnic cleansing uh, can be uh, attributed to and possibly genocide as well. Uh, so it's all quite distasteful. But um, the Biden administration and the Washington, D.C. press corps could tell itself that this was a, an approach that was somehow yielding success or was, or was fruitful. Um, and of course, at the heart of the Abraham Accords approach is the idea that the Palestinians are worth paying attention to and that the Palestinians are uh, some kind of are, are a joke to be ignored. Uh, but uh, perhaps not that negative, but like the Palestinians just don't matter. And on October 7th, um, they, the, the bankruptcy of that approach uh, became pretty, pretty gosh darn clear. And you've now got uh, this place that has just, the, the, the whole region is, uh, I think, probably on the cusp of uh, greater horrors to come. And it, it's a pretty stunning, stunning failure. And what uh, the reason Brett McGurk came up most recently, reason I decided to uh, go for this uh, this week, is that he's still apparently lobbying for some kind of deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that for, for, for such a deal to be at all palatable to the Saudi people, uh, it would have to be even more generous than the, the NATO and the nukes deal that was already being contemplated. I know it's a, a monarchy, but basically the population in Saudi Arabia is based is about 90% against um, any deals with Isra or Israel. Like Absolutely. It's incredibly unpopular with them at the moment, mm -hmm. even if, you know, the people in charge are sort of, you know, paying lip service. It just seems mm -hmm. like um, it's a very hard deal to sell. Yeah. Um, and I th it seems like Brett McGurk at this point uh, is looking beyond the Biden administration because uh, I don't think that the Saudis are Republicans and I don't think they're going to be willing to give any such deal to Biden, uh, certainly not in an election year. Um, so perhaps McGurk is is just assuming that you know Trump's going to get in and he'll be able to help uh, help that deal uh, go through. But I also don't think that deal is ever going to happen. Um, I think that certainly the Saudi royal family would love such a deal. But I think that the era when I think what everybody's telling themselves is that okay, once this crisis passes, we'll we'll be able to go do this normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And I I don't really think that this crisis is ever going to pass. I think that we're we're going to start seeing harder and harder limits to what Saudi Arabia can do financially uh, to shore up actors like Jordan and Egypt, uh, which I'm you know tremendously worried about. And then eventually to uh, shore up its uh, its own power over Arabia, um, and I think long before those points occur, um, Saudi Arabia is not going to have the kinds of spare cash anymore that they need to grease the wheels in Washington D.C. Um, and that seems to be what Brett McGurk has attached his uh, his uh, meteoric star to most recently. Um, so yeah, uh, again, I think it will be another stunning Brett McGurk failure. Yet I wouldn't be surprised if uh, he found himself. Yeah, in another administration. In another administration, uh, Republican or Democratic. It, it is an extraordinary career of immense failure. Um, and it's just- But a, is it the sort of failure that America loves because it increases um, defense spending? Well, it's not the kind of failure that America loves. It's the kind of failure that America's government loves. Um, that the the Congress loves, that the military loves, um, and that, of course, because the media is largely owned by the same people who benefit from this sort of thing, uh, we get we get all kinds of stories about um, how clever uh, people like Brett McGurk are. Um, but uh, it's it's just it is really stunning the degree to which the dysfunction of the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy can be laid at the foot of one man. Um, that is quite... Uh... Also a man that very few people know about. And when researching him, a lot of the stuff is either this you know, very recent um, Israel deal or what was happening with Trump with the um, the Kurds. For a man to have so much power and to have caused so much devastation to be essentially a nobody 
to the vast majority of people is shocking. Well, that's part of that is part of how this the whole system persists is that there just so little is known about it, and it is just ex- extraordinary. Like Brett McGurk is a pretty extreme example, but the number of people who just persist in power from administration to administration is uh, quite, it's larger than you'd think. You know, Victoria Nuland, the woman who's largely running the whole Ukraine thing was for Obama and Biden was, I think, briefly uh, Dick Cheney's right-hand woman um, in the Bush administration. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of overlap here uh, that that puts a lie to the idea that we've got some kind of partisan difference when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah, <laughs> And I think a lot of people see that as a virtue. Um, you know, this idea that, oh, well, you know, no matter what, our foreign policy is heading in the same direction, but it's a terrible direction. <laughs> it's just, it's about selling weapons exclusively. And that seems to be the highest national interest that Has we're striving for. Has he any for. experience with Egypt? Just it's a country that's under a massive amount of strain at the moment. I couldn't speak to that. It is part of his remit, but it, it does seem like he's he's somewhat maniacally focused on this Israel-Saudi Arabia deal. Uh, despite the fact that he's nominally supposed to be in charge of the Middle East and North Africa. Um, Because with the Houthis and the refugees, Egypt's the one that seems to be getting all of the worst end from this conflict. And the most likely, you know, if Egypt collapses, it's just a a massive issue that's going to affect the uh, definitely um, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Absolutely. And, And Brett McGurk, our Middle East guy, is going to make the worst of it and make a lot of money for himself in the process. Yeah, as long as he can... Oh, you see, I don't... You know, that's the thing is what's so... He doesn't make much money. (laughs) Well, well, that's what's so strange is that he really does seem to be like a compulsively dedicated public servant who just wants to ruin things and doesn't want to ruin things. Might actually think he's doing the right thing. Um, But there's so little honest analysis of... Uh, our serial failures in the Middle East that that perhaps no one's ever brought it to his attention that he's screwing things up as badly as he has as he has, um, which is well I guess what we're trying to do here, Rory. Mm-hmm. A little bit of scrutiny on a man you may not have heard of. Indeed. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is Rob O'Law, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.